if you're not doing anything and it becomes chronic, there the consequences might be this. Yeah, that you lose great people, people who clearly you need because you're not listening and they can't take it anymore. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Lainey. I am the editor of LaineyGossip.com, a talk show host in Canada, and also an entertainment reporter. My current obsession is a Korean drama called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. And I'm wondering, given the absence of original programming in Hollywood, whether or not we'll soon be seeing Korean and Chinese dramas on American Network primetime. I'm Duana Taha. I am a television writer and producer. I am hearing all kinds of different things all the time about when we're getting back to work. And in the meantime, I'm starting to think about anthology shows like Love Life on HBO Max with Anna Kendrick. And what are the kinds of people that we can see starring in those series that we haven't seen before? But on this episode, it's all about you, your work questions, your work situations, your work conundrums. We asked for letters. God, did you send the workplace juice? You will hear us get as giddy as tweens at a sleepover as we tell you what to do about annoying bosses and entitled coworkers. This is Show Your Work. Okay, I am so excited to do this. I am so excited because we basically get to, I get to play being you and Sasha. Yes. I, we laugh and talk all the time about how, how desperate you are to be on What's Your Drama because you love pe- telling people what to do. I love telling people what to do. Um, you guys laugh and make fun of each other a lot, which in the spirit of being colleagues on Show Your Work, you and I don't always. We're trying to, like, in theory, be respectful of each other. Um, and I often save them up to listen to when I'm doing an all-nighter. Uh, so it's a lot of, like, I learn a lot of things Uh that I kind of know, but like, for example, uh, the themes of Sasha never having tampons run, uh, you know, through decades. With right? all friends. She yep. doesn't discriminate. Seasons change. No. So here's what I think I have down to do this. We're going to read letters that are uh, people wanting work advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in order for this to like, and this came about because Sasha got a question that she felt was more suited for us. Yeah. Um, so, uh, first there needs to be an argument about who's going to read. Uh, what does that mean? You're going to argue? I'm going to read. There's no argument. There's always an argument. You guys always do like, okay, you read. No, you're better. No, you do it. I 
think um, if I you guys can have say not listened to what's your I drama, have better flow than her. Okay. Than you. That's incorrect. <laughs> um, and then uh, when we get to the advice part, then we're gonna like talk in circles and and sort of like be have one position, then realize we have another. That's do I have it about down? I'm actually really excited about this because I think that you are, um, I don't know if you are, you're the contrarian. So it doesn't come, Sasha and I come back around to each other. I think that you will remain firmly in your, your thing and we'll get stuck in this podcast. will be three hours long because you won't give up in making me wait, say, okay, wait. you're right. Wait, but are you guys supposed to, is that your rule? Like you don't move on until you agree? Well, we move on sometimes where she thinks one thing and I think the other, and we just like agree about on that. But you're not like that. Oh, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's you see are. What happens, yeah, but, exactly. Okay. Um, anyway, so as Duanna just said, we are, we've been getting a lot of emails from many of you who listen to this podcast, thank you so much, about your work dilemmas, especially during COVID 19. Um, so we thought since we've gotten so many of them, we take a couple of these questions because they apply to so many people in so many situations. So want to get started? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. This is uh show your work. Um, what, what kind of edition show your work? Um, hear like, your work edition. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, so this is the one that Sasha received and thought it was more suited for this podcast. Hi, Sasha mm -hmm. and Lainey, but Duanna. I'm not sure you cover questions like mine, but your recent post on Lainey Gossip about whitewashed casting reminded me of a quandary I'm in. I'm an aspiring YA author working on my first novel. If I had my way, the two main characters would be a romantic couple, but the two main characters are women and I'm straight and happily married. I've had friendships that bordered on crushes, but that's about it. I'm getting lots of different advice. Stay in your lane and write it as a friendship story. Write it how you want, but use sensitivity readers liberally. Write it with a queer subtext, but no overt romance. I'm really not sure what the right thing to do is. I don't want to step on own voices or shy away from what could be a good queer romance or be guilty of queer baiting. I would appreciate your insight. W. I don't know what W stands for, so Duanna, would you like to give W a W name? Uh, sure. Uh, let's go with Whitney. Okay. So Whitney mentioned something called own voices. I think that we should, and own voices is capital O, own, capital V, voices. So I, should we start by um, explaining to people who don't know own voices what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, me? <laughs> <laughs> See? No. See what I did there? <laughs> Tell them what own voices is. I, uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to have to, I understand what it is colloquially, but as a movement with capitalized, I'm not sure that I know in so many words. Uh, but own voices is a term coined by the writer Corinne Duivis. Oh my gosh. Uh, D-U-Y-V-I-S. And refers to an author from a marginalized or underrepresented group writing about their own experiences or from their own perspective, rather than someone from an outside perspective writing as a character from an underrepresented group. Uh, um, and you and I talked a little bit about 
this last week, but uh, publishing is really confronting uh, the ideas of representation and of who gets to tell what stories, because for a long, long time, uh, you know, who got to write a book was even sort of scaled back to who went to what kind of MFA program uh, and was therefore asked to write a debut novel or subsequent novels or so forth. So uh, they've been confronting it in a way that is different than uh, the entertainment industry, but that is right there. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? I mean, this is about storytelling. Um, If you don't know that reference, you didn't do your homework on Disney Plus this weekend. Anyway, yeah, I think that this is not just limited to Whitney's situation. We have been, as you just said, Duanna, or alluded to what Hollywood is confronting right now about storytelling, who gets to tell the stories, who is at the table to tell stories. Um, and in particular, in publishing, in book writing, there have been a few controversies over the last few years about this kind of storytelling as non-BIPOC authors attempt to make their stories more diverse and representative uh, where they've fallen short, which is Whitney's concern. She's looking at all the angles, right? She identified all the criticisms really that have been, you know, leveled at writers who have attempted this. Um, And, uh, whether or not um, when you're trying to make your story more inclusive, uh, how you avoid those pitfalls. So as a writer, when you're you're telling stories every day, you're working on stories, you're working on multiple shows, how do you, what are you doing in terms of making sure, you know, queer storylines are represented, BIPOC storylines are represented? How are you managing that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the the biggest issue in television and film uh, is that, uh, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is that a fear of getting it wrong uh, can lead to just eliminating those stories altogether. So that is definitely paramount in, uh, certainly in TV and film, is saying, uh, how do we tell this story? How do we not shy away from telling it? The difference, of course, is that TV and film is a collaborative medium, Um, that there are writers and other writing consultants or producers or whomever that you can ask people for their insight. You can ask them to have a seat at the table literally and, you know, share what they think and still be the writer who applies it to your story and your characters and so forth. So uh, definitely erring on the side of getting more information. But I'm not going to lie, it is definitely a place that is a concern all the time. Um, As I continue to write things with characters who have been underrepresented, you sort of realize the enormity of like, oh yeah, I do have to find somebody or more than one somebody who can speak to this experience, who can at bare minimum check and balance me to make sure that I'm not putting my ideas of a story onto onto these characters or of representation onto these characters uh, because, you know, it's that thing where somebody's uh, sexuality or their gender identity or their cultural identity um, does or doesn't come into play as much as 
as much as it should, right? You don't want somebody to walk into a room and be like, hi, this is the story on my genitals um, when they're supposed to be there to be whatever, the clerk at the DMV. So uh, the long story is it's complicated and it's about asking people's opinions. Um, But I have questions too for Whitney about what it is she's writing. Do you, do you know what I mean? Are you going where I'm going? Um, well, I don't know. Continue. You know, it's, it's about the way that you wrote it, Whitney. First of all, I should say uh, that uh, you write, I'm an aspiring YA author. And there's also a movement, if you're up on all the movements, there's also a movement on Twitter to not call yourself an aspiring author. Uh, if you are a YA author, then you are the end. Uh, You might be pre-publishing, but you are. But you write, if I had my way, the two main characters would be a romantic couple. And my immediate thought is, well, you do have it your way. This is what you're writing. This is your story. Uh, So the question is not, to my mind, can they be uh, a romantic couple, even though I myself am am not in a lesbian relationship. It's why do I want to tell this story? Is it about uh, women discovering a relationship with women for the first time? Is it about uh, somebody who who didn't know that that was the case? Because um, obviously, this is important enough to you that this is not just a story about these two. I don't know going spelunking and, uh, and having an adventure where they discover gold, right? Like obviously the relationship means something somehow. So I guess my question is why it's important that these two characters be a couple and how does it affect your story? Because I think that in that case, uh, you know, if it affects your story because the thing that happens in, on page 99 is going to affect their relationship. Um, You know how relationships work, obviously. So you can speak to what that might affect while also going, yeah, but I don't know this kind of relationship in the same way. Um, You go for a minute while I, while I re, while I re kind of triangulate where I'm going here. Well, my first thought is, as you said, I'm working on my first novel if I had my way. And the thing is, I just go back to, and this might be like a real boring response, but I go back to what you have been saying um, for a long time and what you taught me and what I continue to put out there on Laney Gossip, which is you can't fix nothing. So mm-hmm. I think that for you, Whitney, if this is the story you want to tell, if these are the characters that are coming out of you and they happen to be two women and they're into each other, then start writing. Um, you'll fix it when it needs fixing. And Mm -hmm. that is, that is writing as well. Like writing they say is very vulnerable because there's nowhere to hide. When you write, you are then confronted with sometimes your feelings, the feelings that you didn't really want to expose. Sometimes you're confronted with a truth that you didn't want to face up to. Um, sometimes you're confronted with a blind spot. And it may be, Whitney, that you being straight and happily married, but being interested in a story about two women who are falling in love, it may be that in writing that story, 
you will find out that you have certain blind spots about the queer community. And great. Then you took yourself to a place where you learn something or you will be asked to learn something. Someone will point it out to you. But if you don't write it, like, and and before you even start writing it, you're ham-fisting yourself with what ifs, what ifs, I don't know, how about this? I don't think that that exercise is getting you anywhere. So again, maybe this is super basic bitch because we always say this, but you can't fix nothing. Just start writing it. I think that's really great advice. Get it on the page. Figure out which parts of the dynamic are uh, essential to have, why you need it. Uh, And then you can go back and go, who can help me with the parts that maybe look uh, a bit unreal, a bit like they're not feeling authentic? Uh, It it is worth mentioning that uh, Shonda Rhimes created Grey's Anatomy without ever having been a doctor. Uh, that nobody on The Sopranos, to uh, my knowledge or to public knowledge, <laughs> was in the mob. Not everybody has to only write from things that they have literally experienced their own selves. Obviously, there are and have to be uh, things that are purely coming from a place of imagination and creativity. Um, but the question is, can you do it and tell a story that is authentic for these characters and that doesn't feel like it is uh, uh, doing it for the sake of doing it, right? Like just having them be uh, queer baiting, essentially. Which is why the only caution I would give is uh, I, I disagree with the suggestion to write it with a queer subtext, but no overt romance. I feel as though that is, and there are people who can speak much, much more eruditely than I on this topic, but I feel as though that is a choice that has uh, frustrated the LGBTQ community for a long, long time because they weren't allowed to say it. I know there's an art form to having queer subtext, but no overt romance. But in a lot of cases, that was because the overt romance wasn't allowed, wouldn't be considered uh, sellable, wouldn't be commercial. Um, and we're not in that place now. And I I would caution against something like that, that, uh, that implies that any queer relationships should be subtext, should be in the background, because I'm not sure that's uh, that is an essential story that we need told right now. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that unless you're writing, if, unless Whitney, you're based in China, then I don't think that, yeah, you're one of those suggestions that you received, quote, write it with a queer subtext, but no overt romance applies to the Westernized world. And I'm assuming you're writing from the West. In China, for sure, they still have to do that. And they're well, like- China, Middle East, lots of places, yeah. sure. But here, given that there have been advances and progress, progress made by people who've made sacrifices, um, I don't think that's a concern. I totally agree with you, Duanna. Um, So start. Go for it. Who are these people? Yeah, write your story. Why are they a romantic couple? What is it about them that draws them into this situation? What does that mean about who they were, who their former romantic relationships were? 
Why is it difficult for them? Why is the plot of the novel, because I think there's some other plot that is the the A plot here, why is that a problem to their relationship that is emerging or not? Um, I agree with Lainey for sure. Play it all out, and then you can see where you need extra sensitivity and extra help, uh, but don't not write it. Absolutely. And don't ham fist yourself before you get there. Yeah, you'll get there eventually, but the first step is just to write it. I will say, though, the side point to this that I, I want to let other writers and storytellers know is at a certain point, too, your stories and your everything can't be, as Duanna, you are fond of saying this, can't be all things to all people either. Mm-hmm. Right? So Excellent point. There's also something to making sure that these characters are fully realized, that they have purpose, that they are real, that they're complicated, all the things that you would do with any other character. But it's not about checking off a list of, have I done this? Have I done that? Have I just tell a story that you think is from your original point of view that you think will be interesting, that is interesting to you first and foremost without looking down a list of requirements, hoping to be all the things to everybody. For sure. I, th- I think that's great. And I think that uh, it sounds like Whitney is coming from the place of uh, the way we've heard people talk about characters a bunch of times. This character just is gay. They just are, which is great. That's how we want people to be seen. Just like this character does sing out loud and this character is, you know, a type A grade grubber. Um, so, but yeah, they they need to be many more things than that. And I'm sure that is the plan, Whitney. Um, but uh, to go back to the original point, the more you write it, the more you can prove that uh, and then get into what that means for those characters. But you know what? As, as two people who do write, I mean, we also get where you're at. Starting is the worst. <laughs> Right? Starting is oh, the worst. I mean, if that's partly what this is about, uh, if you need us to be your bully, uh, bully big, like sort of people who are going to be bossy and say, you need to have a first draft written in a month or else, we are happy to do that. Uh, we are recording this podcast. At the beginning of July is July 6th. So, uh, Whitney, you need a first draft uh, August 6th. Too soon? Too bad. Uh, um, you, you can write to us. We can talk about an extension. Uh, Let's get an yes, outline down. Get it out there, and then you can fix it later. You're also talking to two people who have deadlines and have to start something. <laughs> and I'm spending my time on Whitney's issue so that I don't have to work on m- my outline. So, there. Whitney. Yeah, now who's going long? Okay. (laughs) Just get started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So next, here's one that we are dying to get into. Um, 
Here we go. Hi, Duanna and Lainey. I've been sitting on this work problem for months and it's been driving me crazy. I do tech work in a financial services company. Since the beginning of 2020, I've been on this insane project that has required lots of resources and hands on deck to help out with this company-wide initiative. It's exciting work and I'm really proud of the progress. The problem? With such a large project, there are lots of people being pulled into it. One person in particular, I'm going to call him Fake News. Fake News was introduced to the project a few months ago so he could lend his expertise in subject matter X that I have solid experience with. Fake News does not have any experience, credentials, or skill set in subject matter X. He does happen to have a high-level degree in art history, which he boldly appends to his email signature, LOL. Um, he uses industry-specific nomenclature to cloak his lack of understanding in Subject X. This doesn't validate one's ability to do the job. As my boss has observed, fake news has the skills of a very entry-level intern for Subject X, but was given an extraordinary amount of power to lead a portion of the project. Since uh-huh. fake news is from a different team and by nature of this organization's structure, I don't have the power to tell him to fuck off. I had to work with him. I watched him prepare substandard work. I watched him disclose a customer's financially sensitive information in front of an audience. Throughout this entire time, I called out the issues I saw. It was exhausting because I was constantly calling out his poor work quality, checking his work, and doing my own job. I didn't have a choice. A lot of decisions were riding on the results of fake news's work. Each time I called out his work or inquired about his approach, he would back down immediately and concede to what I said. He doesn't have the ability to back up or show his work, which is an essential part of the job we have. Sometimes he would modify the work so it suited his proposals, which is a big no-no. Zero consequences were applied to fake news. Talk about white man privilege. It's totally normal for people to switch careers, nudge their way into new niches. I respect when people want to carve out new paths, and it takes a lot of courage to do so. This was my approach to working with him. I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. I tried to provide the feedback in a constructive way, pointing out the things that his work was lacking and that he needed to show his work. I would do this for anyone starting out in my industry. My feedback was met with resistance or disregarded. He did not want feedback from me, and he refused to ask for help. I'd like you to weigh in on how to deal with fake news. I have lots of experience in Subject X, and I'm going to be in charge of it moving forward, but that means I also have to work with fake news. There are always going to be people who, like in school projects, never pull their weight. I just want him to be someone else's problem. How do I work with someone I don't respect and don't trust? How do I navigate situations in which stakeholders might ask me about the work that fake news did without outwardly saying that his work is not a reliable source of information? For the record, I'm a woman, a person of color, and I have had to work extremely hard to get to where I am today. How does that not surprise me? Anyway, oh, and I'm younger and I don't get paid as much as that asshat. Thank you, love you, and hold you both in the highest regard. Well... How many people are listening to this and nodding? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How many people wonder if they themselves wrote the letter about <laughs> fake news without uh-huh. noticing? Okay. So what is this woman's name? Give her one, Duanna, please. Why don't we go with true? If he's fake news, then she's true. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. All right. But I need to clarify one thing. There's one thing I was listening along going like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm doing the psychological profile of this dude. 
But then there were two things that seemed in conflict to me. So um, she says, uh, each time I called out his work or inquired about his approach, he would back down immediately and concede to what I said. He doesn't have the ability to back up or show his work, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then a little later, she said, I tried to provide the feedback in a constructive way, pointing out the things his work was lacking and that he needed to show his work. I would do this for anyone. My feedback was met with resistance or disregarded. He did not want feedback from me and he refused to ask for help. So is it, um, what do you think is, is the, what do you think is behind those two statements? I was wondering is like, is one in public and the other is not, or like one is when the heat is on, you know, in a boardroom or whatever, and maybe another is after the fact. What's your gut? I think it, I think that there is a connection there. I know that they may seem in opposition, but I think it all stems back to, he doesn't give a shit. So backing down is also like, all right, whatever. Like, see, they're going to do my thing. I disagree, I think, but you, you go. You no, go I mean, it's not any more than that. It's, I think it, both of them go back to, he doesn't care about what she has to say, which is why he disregards and, you know, doesn't really, um, doesn't really have any, like, uh, that he disregards and rejects her recommendations. But also like when she points out to him, Hey, this is wrong. He backs down because why put in any effort? This person hasn't been asked to be better or at least has never been held to it. See, I read this letter. I mean, I don't want to lose sight of the end questions uh, and and what she's actually asking here. Um, because, uh, True, you wrote that uh, you're going to be in charge of the project moving forward but you still have to work with him. And how do I work with someone I don't respect and don't trust? And how do I navigate situations where the stakeholders might ask me? Those are the questions. And they're the easiest to answer because um, on some level, the answer is you just got to do it. You will meet many of fake news. Uh, I'm sure you've met many of fake news uh, and you just kind of have to you know, accept that you're going to have to say to him, hey, I need you to run these numbers again. Um, I found a couple results that didn't really add up. So I'm hoping you can just do it again. Thank you very much. Can you do that? Great. Um, It is not the way we want to be in a workplace or in a collaboration where where you kind of have to drop the hammer and be direct about it, especially given that somebody is, uh, you know, older than you and clearly higher paid. And it's implied, although I'm not sure, uh, you know, that the title is also, that his title is higher than hers. Fair? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you have to give a certain amount of deference to, if not to him, then to the process of being colleagues. Hey, fake news. Um, Listen, I really need you to adhere to the memo that Big Boss sent out if you could just do this again and incorporate the formula in each answer, I really need that. Thank you so much. Um, it's not fun, but that is the, that's the short answer of how are you going to work with someone you don't respect and don't trust? You just cover your ass and make sure they do what they do. Right? Yep. I mean, I'll, I want to take this back a bit because, um, 
in every industry, and there have been studies about this, we've heard about um, the difference that men and particularly white men have in the workplace where risk is involved and what women have to go through. And so we've all heard people say that white men go into a situation that they're not prepared for unprepared. Like, whereas women go into a situation or are reluctant to go into a situation or are reluctant to go into a situation that they're not overly prepared for. It's that difference between preparation, over-preparation and under-preparation. Um, yeah, we talked about it, I think, when we were talking about um, uh, Wonder Woman director mm -hmm. Patty Jenkins, thank you, uh, was talking about exactly this, how much she prepped uh, for her meetings and people who don't prep uh, nearly as much and get better jobs and so forth. Like the two showrunners um, of Game of Thrones. Uh, yep. Uh, there's also a an internet meme which may or may not have been created by a friend of the pod and the blog, Sarah H. Uh, Lord, grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Mm -hmm. uh, forgive me, internet, if it actually sourced from somewhere else, but I don't think it did. Uh, but yeah, that this is a known, yeah. a known thing. Um, and I, I agree with you that it's a known thing, that it happens all the time. That was your point. Like, who among us has not worked with a fake news? I mean, the second part of that is that there is a school of thought that is more encouraging of women to, like, say, it's so great, obviously, that women in the workplace are overprepared, that no, who know their shit before they take on a new risk. But there mm -hmm. might be a happy balance between preparation and being less risk averse to more, to go for it more. You know what I mean? Because there is something to, um, yes, having some confidence in that, even though you might not know everything, confidence in your ability to eventually get to everything, that there is a, there is, there is a bonus to sometimes going into something risky that you don't know, you haven't done all the work for, that you might not have prepared all the angles for, because you will learn something from that. Not that this pertains, that pertains to this particular question, but there's something there to, to put out there, I think. Well, yeah, I think um, I often fly by the seat of my pants more than I wish I did. Uh, and often as not, uh, that's not the thing that trips you up. Uh, it, it, sometimes I think to myself, eh, I'm a little underprepared and the underpreparedness is almost never what, what will trip you up funny mm -hmm. enough, uh, yeah. because people, you already know the subject matter much better than anybody you're presenting to or, yeah. or showing or whatever. So there's that. But, uh, yeah. So from a work perspective, from a, uh, you know, showing your own work perspective, I agree with you. What's interesting is that this is also a management question. And without getting too deep into it, um, people get promoted to be managers and to work with their colleagues and tell their colleagues what to do without ever having spent a day learning managing. Mm -hmm. This is one of the biggest problems with work in, in the Western world, certainly, right, is that you do really well at a job. And then somebody says, do you want to manage a bunch of people who do this job? 
And in fact, that's a whole other skill set. The idea is, can you watch them because you know how this job is done? But in fact, it's how do you motivate them? How do you give feedback to them? How do you keep them from slacking after 1.17 in the afternoon uh, or trust that they are working? And that's not stuff we train people on ever. So that's hard. My feeling on fake news is that he knows he doesn't know. Now, to your point, Lainey, he may not give a shit that he doesn't know, but that to me is the reason that he concedes your point and and goes, oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll totally do it that way. He knows he doesn't know. Now, he may also resent the fact that you know more than he does, which is why when he's not literally drowning in a board meeting or something, he's like, no, fuck off out of here with your life preserver. I don't want it. But it, it may help you. It often helps me to understand the psychology of why people act the way they do. And my feeling is that he is aware on some level that he's going to be, uh, that he may make a mistake, that he, he may be caught out. Now, to your point, Lainey, he may not be worried about the bigger implications of that, but he may know on some level that that this is a concern or maybe all his tricks to get by work on the team that he's on, mm-hmm. but he's never been called out the way he is on on your team. Uh, so, you know, even the fact that you're recognizing his substandard work, even the fact that you are mentioning his errors may be new for him. And he may, in fact, be somewhat insecure about it. That's not your problem, but it is possibly useful information. Yeah, I think for our listener, True, I don't think he is the problem anymore or necessarily his case. And this goes back to management that you were talking about, Duanna. The problem isn't necessarily that this one person was mismanaged. It's that there clearly has been mismanagement generally in the organization. What my big takeaway is that True's boss agrees with True that fake news is useless. So yes, yes. So True tells us that her boss is like, yeah, yeah, he sucks. So somewhere along the line, True's boss and fake news's boss or maybe True's boss and fake news are on the same level. Like we actually don't really know about titles right now, but in this organization, um, fake news has been allowed to keep contributing without meaningful contribution. That to me, True, is what your focus should be. You've done what you need to do with fake news. You've set the parameters. You've let him know when his work is falling short, which is always. And everybody knows that you've asked him to do better and he can't deliver. So the work here for you, True, is to actually, unfortunately, address the management problems that have allowed fake news to become fake news in the organization. And here's why that's important. You are modeling with fake news right now how to correct and point out and call out errors. Nobody else has done that clearly along the way with fake news, which is why it ended up as your problem. So how many other problems are being created like fake news? 
what I wonder if there are fake news clones all over the organization. I think that is what the focus is is going to be, because unfortunately, if that problem isn't fixed, then there's going to be somebody else in your position, True, dealing with their own version of fake news. Well, it's so interesting that you brought that up because I agree with you and I don't at the same time, Um, which is to say, I thought when you said, uh, you know, let's talk about the management at this company and your boss and so forth. um, You know, the, the idea is here that people know that he only has an entry level or intern amount of information uh, in this subject, but that he's been passed along anyway. On some level, True's boss maybe should be calling this guy out. True's boss should be calling this guy out to to fake news's boss. Yeah. Um, why why not? And, well, because often people run into problems where their bosses sympathize, they empathize. Yeah, that really sucks. That's too bad. Oh, I feel bad for you. And they do nothing. That's the problem. So it is absolutely the problem, but it may not be fixable. Uh, And so that's where I'm focused on true teaching herself management skills here. Maybe she has an incredible boss. Maybe as she goes to him and says, here's the list of what fake news did this week. And by the way, true, write it all down, document everything. Um, Maybe that boss goes to bat for her. Maybe fake news is off the project. But there are a good many bosses in a million different industries who will be like, wow, oh, yeah, well, that feels, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Can you take a day off? No, you're too busy. You can't take a day off? Okay, well, well, thanks. You're such a trooper, i.e. does nothing. And if that's the case, True, you also have to get right with the fact that the buck may only stop with you, that nobody else is actually interested in fixing this situation. I say that not to be a downer, but so that you don't wrap your head around the idea that maybe if you just tell the right people or flag the right flags that this will get fixed. It may be that that fake news is going to be allowed to fail up uh, until it's too big a problem to ignore. That is the reality. And I think that's what a lot of people out there have to do is find workarounds to fake news. Yeah. And and those workarounds are often scandalous and shocking to new people who come in, right? Yeah. When you're like, oh, yeah, no, uh, so-and-so doesn't do his own cost reports. What? What are you talking about? Well, it took too long to make him fix it. So, uh, you know, now Natalie does them for him. Like, pardon? Yeah. Those are the workarounds. And that's the reality. That's probably, Duanna, the practical thing that 99% of people have done, which What's demoralizing, as you were just mentioning, is that when you take that home, in a way, the workarounds only support or at least enable that behavior because it doesn't fundamentally change anything. That's right. And that's why uh, this is what's hard about work talk, right? Is like part of it is like, here's how you get through it. Part of it is, here's what you say to your boss. But the other part is, here's what to do if your boss does nothing. And again, uh, we don't have enough information here. True's boss may be spectacular. Uh, They may be supporting her every which way to Sunday. But 
this is where when you are job hunting, when you're looking, like find somebody who maybe does err on the side of micromanaging. Everybody loves the idea of a boss who's like, oh, yeah, I just like as long as people get their stuff done, no problem. I'm pretty hands off. I'm pretty easy. What that often winds up meaning is that they have plausible deniability uh, for problems that come up. And that can be really nice when you kind of slip out to take in an afternoon matinee one day. But it can be deeply problematic when we're talking about an issue like this. And again, even if True's boss is amazing, maybe fake news's boss is not. But uh, but just it's something to look out for when you are sussing out a company. So I guess the advice is you're going to have your workarounds true, which you've already put in place. Continue those workarounds. That said, there are the few brave ones among us who do challenge the status quo. It is extra Mm -hmm. labor for you. It is extra labor for the people out there who refuse to take on the workarounds because the purest form of work should be everybody shows up and does their job. And the person who challenges the status quo that has enabled people like fake news puts themselves in a vulnerable position and it's added work, added stress, and it's, you know, sometimes a sacrifice. So unfortunately true, this is what's the the shitty thing about giving advice to someone like you who does everything and has shown the work. The shitty thing is that you might have more work ahead of you. That fucking sucks. Yeah. And I would say if you're going to put in the work, put in the work toward a reasoned, calm, and slightly sassy defense when somebody says, hey, fake news is complaining that you did blah, blah, blah. That's where I would put in the work. Your response should be, yeah, Uh, I had asked him to do X, Y, and Z. He couldn't do that. So I modified it to just X. He couldn't do that either. So I did, in fact, ask him to just do A and B. What would you like me to do differently? Like put the effort into your response uh, because he may buck against what you want in terms of how you want to run the project, especially if, and I'm reading between the lines here, you're replacing him on this, on as the lead on this project. But I would absolutely like make a point of having a response ready, both for him and for your boss or his boss or whatever, uh, because that's where it will come down. Oh, she's being mean. She whatever. And Lainey's right. It is extra labor. It is extra emotional labor. So um, just have that ready to pull out of your pocket. And I think you'll feel a lot more secure about just going, this is a widget, this dude, and I just need the widget to do its widget job. Mm -hmm. And maybe a final parting note for the rest of us who are the bystanders, while the trues of the world are doing the work and trying to change the system, maybe even confronting the system, what what is the job of the bystander? Or at least what can the reaction of the bystander is? Because towards the end of her note, True says... How do I navigate situations in which stakeholders might ask me about the work that fake news did without outwardly saying that his work is not a reliable source of information? Why not? Right? Well, okay, but 
I can see a place where that might make you look bad in front of a client. Can we can we do a little role play? Sure, I'll let's be- do a little. But before we get to that, like my question that makes me angry is why True even has to be shy or reticent about telling the truth. You know what I mean? Her question, how do I do this without selling him out? Because we've set up a system in which the person, True, who goes around and answers honestly about the quality of someone else's work is the bitch. How did we get here? Uh, no, absolutely. Like, that's a, but you know how we got here. I we know. Got here bec- well, I know, but let's say it for people. We know because if it's in a meeting with like C-level executives and you say, oh, actually, fake news gave me some faulty numbers that they might think, oh, you're bad at this. Or if it's an outside company and you bitch about him, that maybe you look bad for trash talking your colleagues or whatever. So let's try a couple of So I understand, I guess, why people defend people even when they would rather eat bees. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all of those pressures that put even more pressure on the person doing all the work and the good work. So yeah, do you want to role play? I can be the stakeholder and you can be true. All right, great. Sure. Okay. So should we do from an internal perspective? Sure. Let's let's try something where somebody maybe can guess that fake news is the issue. Hey, so true. The client is saying that they want something in like tomorrow morning because we're already 48 hours past the deadline. What's going on? Well, listen, as I told you, I know that, you know, uh, because we've been talking about this, uh, there are some people on the team who have a bit of a quality problem. So I've had to send them back a couple of times. Uh, I'm sorry that you had to hear it from the client, but I hope it wasn't a surprise because I've been telling you about this. You remember that, right? Remember? Yeah. My thing is I, you know, I need to get back to the client with something and I'm not about to, I know who this individual is, but I'm, I'm not about to sell this person down the river. It, It doesn't make us as a team look good anyway. So what can I bring to the client? Look, nobody's saying that you have to throw anybody under the bus. You can tell the client what I told the client, which is it'll be ready for them in 48 hours. Uh, But from an internal perspective, you know, it would be helpful if I could have maybe some additional support from that other team who know what they're doing, or at least uh, an acknowledgement that uh, some members of my team have vastly overstated their qualifications and the bottleneck is running into skills they don't have. There it is. You pivot it to, you pivot it to, hey, boss, if you don't want to look bad, help me out. Right. Um, and that can be whatever it looks like in the moment, right? More people take him off my plate because I'm bo- done with babysitting him, whatever it is. But, uh, but, but something that indicates that they have a vested interest in you succeeding. The bottom line, true, clench up. Unfortunately, there's no way that Duane and I can paper this over for you in, as you know, probably in like a way that is going to make things easier. It's only just going to be more work either way. Yeah. And I don't think true is afraid of the work of the work. Yeah. Um, but I would say clench up, especially when it comes to uh, having a hard line with him. 
just sort of dropping the hammer being like, yeah, I need it again. And he's going to be all indignant and all like, what? No, it's fine. What? It, what, what, what? And like, just don't get into the debate. You just have to look back at him and go, I really appreciate that you've worked on it for the 90 minutes or whatever it was, but I need you to do it again. Thanks. You know what was interesting about this, though, mm-hmm. is that not everyone is true. Like some people out there are fake news. And do the people who are fake news know that they're fake news? Because <laughs> I've never met a fake news who knows that he's a fake news. And she, yeah. Yeah, she, absolutely she. Um, No, I think that people who are fake news often, often, this is when people get into, oh, it's a personality conflict. She doesn't like me. He's a dick. She is always on my back as though it's something personal, right? And look, this is all, some workplaces are terribly unprofessional. Sometimes people are dicks. Uh, but I think that, uh, I think that people who don't know that they are a, a, a fake news need to, need to think it through, need to talk about whether or not, uh, there's a world in which they have been. And, and if you've never been a fake news, if you've never been in over your head, maybe this is the new thing. If you've never been a fake news and you've never been in over your head and you've never had a dressing down from somebody saying you are the one slowing down this project, consider whether people are protecting you from that reality. Because I firmly believe that we all have been and all should be at some point. A fake news. A fake news. Am I off base? No. I think if you've never heard this, if nobody has ever said, hey, you are the problem right now, you are the bottleneck, then you need to consider the fact that somebody's protecting you and uh, maybe take a comb through and see why that is, because guaranteed we've all been this at some point. And finally, we have a question from Emmy. Emmy asked us to give that name to her. So this is what Emmy wants to know. Emmy works in an animal hospital in a major city as an animal care attendant, ACA, basically the lowest paid medical care, basically the lowest paid medical care position at the hospital. And I have no formal medical training. We have been in essential service throughout COVID. We are not a typical family vet. We do not do regular checkups or administer vaccinations. All of the cases we take are specialized such as neurosurgery or critical cases like pets who've been hit by a car or in cardiac arrest. I work in ER and typically I'm on triage. My issue is ever since COVID, they've put in new procedures, limiting who brings pets into the hospital. So for the past month, I've been taking in triages. This is typically done by a technician who has two years of medical training and more than Emmy Emmy does, put it that way. Emmy says that she's woefully unequipped to be handling these cases Today alone, for example, Emmy handled two pets who needed immediate CPR and was asked by doctors if she had consent from the owners to perform the CPR, which she didn't, and is incredibly stressed. So this is the issue. Emmy's been struggling with anxiety quite a lot. First, uh, her two biggest fears have always been tornadoes. Thankfully, still all good on that front. Thank God. Jesus, my God, tornadoes. And to be living in in a situation... 
we don't know where Emmy is, but of course there are people in yeah. the Midwest, in the Plains, for whom tornadoes are a semi-regular occurrence. So uh, we hear you, but also shout out to the Midwest where that's just a thing. Wow. Okay. So for Emmy, it's tornadoes and infectious or contagious disease. So you can imagine it's been a rough couple of months. Then... Emmy was laid off from her second job in hospitality when quarantine hit, making it impossible to sustainably afford life in the city. Finally, she writes, I had already been struggling with social anxiety, which is exacerbated by increasingly poor communication systems within the hospital. On the way to work, I feel nauseous anticipating the day to come. I've talked to two different floor managers once on the verge of an anxiety attack about how uncomfortable this makes me and have explicitly articulated how inappropriately and underqualified I am to be in these situations. I've asked to be put in a different role. I was informed that they placed me there because, quote, only certain ACAs can do it. I told them about the anxiety this was causing me. I got placed on a different task for exactly two shifts before I was placed back on two hellish incoming shifts. Because we are short staff, in five months I have not worked a properly staffed shift and they needed me to. I've already decided at the end of the month that I'm moving home after seven years in the city in order to deal with my anxiety and not slip further into financial debt. I have not yet given them final notice, but will soon. So the question is, do I continue to bring this up with management at great stress to myself with little results so far in the hopes that the last few weeks are better for myself and maybe they fix the system? Or do I suck it up and keep it together for six weeks and bank on glowing references for the next job? Well, first of all, Emmy, we're so sorry that this has been your existence and probably so many people's during COVID-19. The mental health stress of people on the front lines is, I mean, we talk about it, but it's still underreported and underappreciated. I'm particularly glad that Emmy brought this up because uh, we lost our beloved uh, dog, Libby, uh, a few weeks ago, um, and she was incredibly well cared for by a facility that uh, sounds a lot like the one that Emmy talked about, uh, an ER slash intensive care for animals. And... Um, I've never seen a news story about it. I've never seen anybody talking about uh, how intensely these staff were working around the clock with all the same medical restrictions as in human hospitals. Um, I know how hard it is. I saw firsthand the accommodations they had to make uh, and all while caring for you know, our beloved pets who don't, who don't know why things are different, who don't know why their people can't be in the hospital, which is a lot of what's happening. So sending much, much love to, to Emmy and, uh, and to the, uh, animal hospital, uh, that, that took such good care of our Libby. I, I know firsthand what this looks like. And so, I guess there are the the question is if she's going to go should she continue to bring this up with management but I have another thought too and I didn't intend to get here but it you know Emmy whether or not this is a comfort to you and it may well not be 
what is coming through loud and clear from your letter is that in these crazy times when people have to take on jobs that they don't, they aren't fully trained for when everybody's understaffed and so forth, clearly your superiors think that you can do the job. They have confidence in you. They are not worried about the position that you are in, uh, which is good and bad, but from a skill level, because you mentioned your skills and your training, they seem to think that you're up to the task. So if that is a comfort, take that with you. Yeah. If, if that is definitely a comfort, you know, have confidence in your ability, which I guess that speaks to, I think, your last point, which is banking on glowing references for the next job. The thing, Emmy, is I think, you know, and this might be too Pollyanna, but you're probably going to get the glowing references anyway. They keep coming to you. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, um, you know, there's clearly the the things that you don't have done or the permissions that you didn't get or the anxiety that you're suffering, which I know goes under-acknowledged a lot of the time, clearly is not getting in the way of of the care that you're providing for your patients, which obviously is priority number one. So you should, you should pat yourself on the back for that. As uncomfortable as you may seem, or as, as uncomfortable as you may feel, or as, as bad as the processes may currently be, um, clearly people still feel that you are doing a good job for what that's worth. But again, like True, who we, we addressed True's issue just before yours, it's about the labor. Do you want to take on this extra labor of even though you're, you know, you're checking out, you are bouncing? Do you want to, should you take on the extra work of making this workplace better even when you're not there? And obviously, this has come at a considerable cost to you. Not only are you anxious about th- being thrown into that s- these situations, which you feel you are unprepared for, and but they have tried, they have confidence in, but um, you're dealing with anxiety, you're stressed out, resources are short. That's part of the issue. Should you continue to point it out? Should you continue to be that person who says we need to fix these issues? Right. Um. My opinion on this, and it really is just my opinion, is that you can continue to point out what you think is wrong, uh, but I don't think you should anticipate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Often when somebody is in this situation, it takes until they leave for people to realize, oh yeah, they really weren't kidding. I have been in situations where I left jobs and was replaced not by one, but more than one person uh, because people go, oh, yeah, she wasn't just complaining. There really is a lot of work or this is a problem. You may not even realize that you are hiding the issues, even though you think you're telling them and complaining about what's going on. You may still be hiding the fallout from your superiors because you're so good at your job. So by all means, uh, continue to point things out if you want to, but I would not wait on a change, especially not within the next six weeks when everybody is still 
struggling uh, to to cope in this bananas world, which, as you point out, Lainey, is having a massive effect on mental health across the board. The reason why this question spoke to me, though, is that it is about that exit interview that people talk about, you know, (laughs) right? You've had them. I've had them. I've heard so many stories about what has happened when people find other opportunities because clearly the place that they were in wasn't fulfilling to them for a variety of reasons, be it mental health, be it a lack of mobility in terms of um, promotions, about uh, like opportunity, be it that, you know, the work just wasn't um, to standard, all of that. And what do you do in an exit situation? Or, you know, do you just set your locker on fire and just, you know, peace out? Or do you help them in your final, final moments? Do you still say, listen, people are unhappy and they're going to continue to be unhappy unless you do this? I think we don't have enough information to know whether uh, in Emmy's case, the labor, as you accurately point out, is going to be worth it. Um, because there are places where the results of an exit interview, the reason I laughed is that, uh, even precious few places actually have them, uh, and precious fewer places actually have the information disseminate to where it needs to go. But only Emmy can know whether people are going to listen. If she doesn't feel listened to now, I don't know how much more people are going to take what she says with, you know, the appropriate amount of credence, especially if she's saying I'm moving back home Mm -hmm. or I'm having anxiety. They will be all too quick sometimes to chalk up her leaving to anything but we have a problem. You know why this is also timely is because, as you said, Duanna, a lot of the time people don't listen. And what we're finding now is that when they don't listen, the ultimate consequence, especially if you were thinking about um, all the all the reporting that's being done in the media on workplaces that are broken, uh, not diverse, and cruel to uh, the the people of color and people from other marginalized groups who work in those workplaces. They have felt that they have no choice but to publicize the brokenness in their workspaces. In Canada here, some people are still working in those workspaces and they've tweeted, you know, threads of instances calling out actually people by name. I work with this person. This is an incident of racism. Here's an incident of microaggression on Twitter. Um, they have addressed it. So the the going on Twitter and talking about these experiences is actually not the first time they've brought these things to the table. It's because they've brought them to the table so many times and nothing was ever done. And this is a last resort, putting themselves at risk. I'm so, so glad that you said that uh, because I think there can be an attitude of, oh, so you just complain and you bring it to the internet. And in fact, it's, no, it's the opposite. Uh, and there was something really, uh, a, a Canadian uh, 
journalist and political voice named Andre Domis said something I really liked on Twitter. He said that uh, the the calling it out is to prevent the knee jerk reaction from higher ups of, oh, this was just one time. It was just a one time exception, which is, of course, what people have been told time and time again. Mm -hmm. This was a one off. It was a one time mistake. This is not typical. And in fact, no, it wasn't. And yes, it is. So I'm not suggesting to Emmy that you go on Twitter and and reveal all these things. My point here is to the people who are in management, who do hear these grievances and who are getting feedback in exit interviews or otherwise about the failings of the organization, the failings of management, how people's concerns are not being heard, and who aren't doing anything. If you're not doing anything and it becomes chronic, there, the consequences might be this. Yeah, that you lose great people, people who clearly you need because you're not listening and they can't take it anymore. Emmy, one thing I think you should do, and maybe you already have, but if not, definitely uh, I would say do this. Write it all down. Send your supervisors a letter, an email. Don't try to tell them when you're at the end of your shift and you're stressed out and exhausted because they will be inclined to chalk it all up to that. Send something when you're calm. Send something when you're like, here are the seven instances where I was put into a situation where I didn't have the medical training. Or here are the four times that because we were understaffed, I had to do things that weren't best for our patients. Send them that note so that it's all there in a concrete way and they can't brush any given complaint off as she's tired or that was a particularly crazy shift or, oh, honey, can I get you a Starbucks? Like, put it in a situation where they can't ignore you. I like that suggestion. And then you know, and then they'll do with it what they will. Uh, and maybe they still won't address it until six months after you're gone. But You've done least, your part. That's exactly right. So thank you, True. Thank you, Emmy. Thank you, Whitney, for your questions. If you have more questions and you would like us to help you with your work dilemma, keep sending them to us. We actually have more. Um, so let us know what you think about this episode, the style of, of episode. We, we would like to make it a more regular thing, maybe not next week, but definitely not too far in the future. Um, and if you don't have a question, but you like homework, check out Vulture's piece on Michaela Cole. Uh, I have had no fewer than eight people send it to me because it is apparently chock full of work. I haven't read it yet. Uh, but here is a little tantalizer. She wrote 191 drafts of I May Destroy You. There are 12 episodes. She wrote 191 drafts. Let that galvanize us as we go into the week. I feel like a preacher. Michaela Cole is our energy. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave comments and reviews. We always appreciate it. And we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.